This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. wondered how Wisconsin got so polarized, what journalism has to do with it, and how we might start repairing some of those fractures. You're going to want to listen to my conversation this week with University of Wisconsin journalism professor Mike Wagner. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about state government and politics in Wisconsin. Mike has a background in both journalism and politics, which gives him an excellent perspective in the research and teaching that he does at the UW Journalism School. He's also one of several researchers involved in the Center for Communication and Civic Renewal. We'll talk this week about what he and his research team have learned so far about polarization, civic engagement, and news consumption in Wisconsin. Stay tuned. I'm Mike Wagner. I'm a professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. Um, We've been talking about having you on the show for a while in a lot of different capacities, and we're going to have you back at some point soon to talk about communicating across the aisle with a Republican member of the legislature. But right now, today, we're just going to chat the two of us about what you've been working on lately, which is a ton of fascinating stuff leading up to uh, the 2020 election. Um, So your background is in journalism and politics, and you've got kind of the best of all of the worlds of communication and and politics and academics. So how did you come to be where you are? Well, I I always loved watching television news and then reading the Sunday morning newspaper when I was growing up. It just made me feel adult. And so I really liked (laughs) doing that. And then as I kept doing it, um, I uh, I grew up in a really small town uh, in Minnesota and the local radio station needed somebody to uh, make sure the church services went live on Sunday mornings. And so when I was 14, I got a job in the summer of achy breaky heart to go to the radio station and (laughs) make sure that all the church services played back to back on Sunday morning radio. And then they started letting me do other things. And by the time I was 15, I was the assistant news director at the station and um, was covering news stories and that sort of thing. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in journalism, worked as a reporter in Peoria, Illinois, covered a couple of governors who both went to federal prison. And then, <laughs> Isn't that just what happens if you work in Illinois? I think, I think it's part of the – Unless you get your, your sentence commuted. No. That, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, that's right. Now I've, now I've covered somebody who's been pardoned, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> Um, and then um, I worked in Omaha as a reporter for a while, kind of in the 2000 election cycle. And then right in the summer of that year, I left the news business to go be a press secretary for a campaign uh, for Congress in Nebraska's 2nd District, which is the one that flipped for Obama in 08, um, but um, is normally um, kind of a swing district in Nebraska. And then I uh, went to graduate school in political science at Indiana after that, and then Worked as a political scientist uh, at the University of Delaware, the University of Nebraska, and then uh, came here and I'm in the School of Journalism um, where I can kind of do all of the things that I have done and was trained to do across my life. So you you 
there's obviously a, a huge research component of being a professor, but there's also the teaching component, which mm-hmm. is, you know, where most students are, are interacting right. with you. And so you're teaching a lot of future journalists. And um, I've come in and, and talked to your classes a handful of times. What makes you excited, I guess, about about teaching journalism to the students who are considering going into it when, you know, it's we're living in polarized times and, and journalism is being vilified and it's not a well-paying I'm really selling the profession now. It's <laughs> right, right. not a well-paying job I mean, it's it's you know it's it's a tough field to go into but you're charged with getting uh, young people excited about it and and teaching them how to do it well so what motivates you to do that right yeah it's a job where when you're really doing your job well lots of people don't like you and you don't make a lot of money so, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know I, I think well one thing that I'm heartened by is the students we have uh, at, at Wisconsin are good people curious people and hard workers. And so I think those are three important elements to doing anything well, but especially doing journalism well, right? You you need to be an ethical person to cover the kinds of things we need to learn about uh, to be good citizens in our country um, so that you do that job ethically. And curiosity, I think, is super crucial to telling good stories uh, and, you know, working hard and, and taking taking the note, right, taking advice. And so one thing I do, as you mentioned, I, I, I ask folks um, who are professionals like you to come in and talk to class and it's always their favorite things because they're learning that there's a lot of different ways to have successful careers. There's a lot of different ways to think about how career trajectories look. There's a lot of different strategies to conduct good interviews, to good to do uh, smart investigations, to deal with working on deadline and not having sources call you back. And so just hearing all of those perspectives, I think, helps students because it, it's sort of an overwhelming thing where, especially I think the current generation where talking on the phone is really novel. And then you get into a journalism class and the professor says, you can't email your sources. And they're like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. so you have to talk to you, – you, the first thing you should do is show up. And if they, you can't find them, then call them. And if that doesn't happen, um, I'm going to have you call other people instead. And then you know, maybe, maybe you can do an email at the very last second if you've, if you've got no one. But getting students to kind of think about how all forms of communication are super important for the job um, is, is a challenge I think in the new generation. Yeah, that's weird to think about. I mean, I there there are people who just don't talk on the phone, right? Or don't you know check voicemail or don't. It's just a foreign concept. Yeah, uh, you know, and I mean, in my Twitter feed, I see that as a point of pride for some people. Like, yeah, I don't check my voicemail. Like, well, how do you know who wants to talk to right. you? Right. <laughs> that's. I mean. Yeah. I, although the the visual voicemail, I think uh, development on on cell phones has been like a, a lifesaver in oh, that regard. That. It's yeah. so great. You can look really quickly. It's see. fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so so you've worked on on kind of both sides as having done this as a press secretary and having done this as a journalist. Um, how do you see the relationship between uh, the the press and and the politicians that they cover um, and and the way that people consume political news has that changed uh, in the time that you first got into the field? I think it's changed. I think that there have always been some politicians who have a more developed idea of the kind of relationship they want to have with journalists. These are often people in the leadership or people who have designs on higher office, and so they make themselves available. Um, they get better at, at answering questions um, and. You know, they're the public people we see. And then there's other folks, I think, who journalists have cultivate relationships with and they may not always find their way into stories but are super important for just the day-to-day of knowing what's interesting and what to cover and what key issues are to help explain to readers or, or, or viewers. But I think in the new era, it's so much easier for politicians to jump over journalists and use Facebook and Twitter or other kinds of social tools to – 
get their information out to the people they want to get it out to without having to answer hard questions about it. And so I think that's that's a big change, I think, um, in how journalism and the relationship between uh, the news media and and elites has has changed in the last decade or so. It's it, it's always been the case that candidates for office or politicians have tried to go public, but it's so much easier and so much more efficient um, and generates a, a reaction that they can reliably measure. Whereas, you know, oh, well, I barnstormed on my train tour around the country and have no clue if people ended up liking <laughs> what I had to say or not. And most of that stuff tends not to be super successful from a public persuasion perspective anyway. But something like Twitter where President Trump can literally see I'm getting less attention. I'm going to go on a tweet storm and then literally see, the, oh, that's getting retweeted a lot and now I'm back on the news again. And they're, and they're just covering the tweet and so I don't have to answer follow-up questions you know, in the national media, which happens a lot. Uh, so I think that's the biggest change. It's weird, I think, for for someone my age who, you know, Twitter came into existence when I was in college and so it was still new. Like when I was learning journalism mm-hmm. and Twitter was – a new concept and I didn't we didn't know what it was going to be but as I've you know grown as a professional journalist it's always been there and part of my job and it's just been there in different ways and it kind of I think sneaks up on you that change over time that it's, it's become this platform for politicians to get their message out that it's also kind of a, a great thing because it allows you to reach those politicians sometimes and see directly, you know, what they're talking about. But you know, I, I think it just kind of snuck up over time the way that it it changed a little bit. Yeah, and, and you could see in the in research about that how, you know, as with many new technologies like websites is another example where first most political leaders don't have them, mm-hmm. and then they do, and they're basically just a domain name and some family photos or something, you know. And the same with with social media. And now, some uh, politicians are really strategic at how they use it. Some interact with journalists on Twitter or or uh, their constituents uh, on, on Twitter or, or Facebook, and they make announcements about fundraising and events they're having and bills they're supporting. And so, it's it's really enriched the communication ecology. And but it's also given some a chance to try to avoid having to answer hard questions. Is there a lot of information out there at this point about, I guess, constituents who are getting their or voters who are getting their messaging directly from politicians as opposed to, you know, maybe having it filtered through the news? I mean, does it change the way that they perceive those politicians or the way they perceive what's happening in the news? It's really hard to isolate because on the one hand, people who are getting their information or choosing to get their information from social media have already made a choice that reveals something important about them, right? So yeah. they don't like the news media already. And so they're already predisposed to like the messages they're getting from the people that they follow, especially if those folks are politicians. And so it is the case, I think, that some research has shown that these kinds of behaviors amplify what are already predispositions. So if if you are a person who is already – a little bit conservative or a little bit liberal and you are skeptical of, of, of maybe the major news sources where you live and you follow politicians on Twitter and get your information that way, doing that repeatedly over time can lead to you becoming more extreme. And especially if your social feed is not heterogeneous. In other words, if your social feed isn't providing a rich array of perspectives, then people tend to become more extreme, more confident in their extreme attitudes, um, less tolerant of the other side. Uh, they like the other side less. And then they some some folks even become lit, like it has it's been shown um, by Liliana Mason and Nathan Calmo that people are actually more willing to support violence against their political opponents. The, wow. the more they're in an echo chamber, the more that um, – 
they live in a world that just says we're right and the other side is not only wrong but dangerous, evil, and must be stopped. Some people take that seriously. Sure. So you're doing a lot of cool research right now um, with the team through the Center for Communication and Civic Renewal. Um, tell me a little bit about that project, and then I'm going to ask you about some of the stuff that you guys have been working on. Sure. So we're a large team, um, five professors, me, Devon Shah, Lou Friedland, Kathy Kramer, and Chris Wells. Uh, Chris was with us at Wisconsin and is now at Boston University, but the rest are at UW. And then uh, a, a large group of graduate students as well. And we are trying to understand kind of simply how did Wisconsin get this way and what might be ways to to fix some of the fractures that have taken place in terms of how our, the people of our state get along, about how politicians do their work, and what, what can we do to, to foster more pro-small-D democratic outcomes um, for our, our state. And so we've done a lot of work showing how contentious politics has become and, and in such a way that it's affected people's lives in ways that it usually doesn't. And so we published a paper a few years ago showing that about a third of Wisconsinites literally stopped talking to someone about politics um, because of their views about Act 10. And then we followed that up a few years later and have found that it's gone. It's gotten worse. Now, 50 percent have just stopped talking to somebody. Like not just we're not going to talk politics, but not the Packers, not the weather, nothing. They've wow. just ended friendships over disagreements about contentious political issues in the state, which is just not how politics tended to affect day-to-day life um, in in the modern American history. And so we're interested in that kind of fracturing and we're trying and we're also interested in how communication across lines of difference seems to be one of those lifelines to help um, solve some of these problems in terms of split ticket voting, in terms of tolerance for the other side, in terms of thinking the people who lose an election should still have voice in government, um, even if they're not the majority voice. Um, though the Wisconsinites believe in those things. They believe in um, a, a nonpartisan redistricting process. They they believe that the the party that gets more votes should get more seats in the legislature. And and so there are there are there are areas of common ground. And our our group is trying to think about how we can promote those areas of common ground and help understand what it is people who have honest disagreements about how the world ought to work can find ways to work together and also find ways to disagree without demonizing each other. So, I mean, we, we hear this at the national level and at the state level that we're more polarized mm-hmm. than ever, we're more divided than ever. And and sometimes people say, well, you know, politics has always been ugly and there's always been, That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, periods of violence and, and periods of, you know, intolerance. So so are we more polarized than ever? Is Is this a historic phase that we're in right now? So polarization is more normal than we think it is. We got really good at studying public opinion in the 1950s and 60s, which especially the early from the 50s to the early 60s, which was an abnormal period of moderation. Okay. And so scholars, I think, assumed wrongly that this is just how things are. But in fact, we've been pretty polarized for most of our history. We had a civil war. You know, that's, right. that's it's pretty polarized. Killing half of us is, you know, is, is a pretty uh, polarized set of behaviors. And so it is the case that we're really polarized now as compared to most of, of this history of polarization. In terms of members of Congress, their voting behavior is more different than at any time uh, since the end of the civil war. So since the country reunified – Republicans and Democrats now are more different and at more loggerheads than ever. Um, those of us who are really strongly liberal and are liberal across a wide array of issues or conservative across a wide array of issues and f- feel as though our identity as a partisan being Republican or Democrat is important to us, those folks are as divided as anybody's ever been divided in American history. And yet there's also folks who are libertarian in their attitudes, populist in their attitudes and moderate in their attitudes. All three of those groups who are really different from each other 
all say moderate when you ask them what they are ideologically <laughs> on a survey. And so we have this sense that there's this big middle, but in fact, the middle is just as divided from each other as liberals are from conservatives. And so there's kind of two kinds of polarization. The the one that amplifies Republicans versus Democrats and then the one that a- amplifies the debates in the middle, which is I think one reason we don't see a centrist third-party candidate because a centrist third-party candidate would have to appeal to libertarians who say the government should be out of your life at all times and to populists who say the government should regulate all these kinds of things um, at all times, which even the most skilled politician can't thread that needle, I don't think. No. So, I mean, can, can we objectively say that like, more polarization is bad for the democratic process? Is that an agreed upon point or is that in dispute? I would, you know, I'm going to do the academic punt and say it's complicated, right? Sure. So the good things about polarization are that they provide really clear choices for voters. Mm-hmm. It's not this obscured, muddled, well, it doesn't really make a difference who I vote for. It does make a difference who people vote for in, the, in these environments. The parties are really different from each other. And so having that clear choice is, is good, I think, for people to help make better decisions that help maximize their preferences. On the other hand, the polarization takes place in a way that doesn't allow people to pick a party that fits their views on across all issues, right? So those libertarians or populists, they they like each party a little bit and don't like each party a little bit. So they're sort of stuck. Mm-hmm. And then meanwhile, polarization itself makes folks less willing to want to compromise with the other side and compromise is a baked-in feature of democratic <laughs> governance. And mm-hmm. so that's a problem. The demonization of the other side to not want to work with them I think is getting worse and we see that in rhetoric of the way lawmakers talk about the other side. Uh, We see that in um, more ideologically oriented news coverage about politics. We see that in how regular people are talking about politics. And so the level of distrust in democratic norms and democratic institutions is at a low, I think. Um, I, I don't know enough about the early 1800s and late 1700s to know if it's at an all-time low, but mm-hmm. it's it's at a dangerous low where we are, I think, in a place where we need to worry about whether things that we've always accepted will happen will happen. A lot of our systems based on trust, and trust is uh, hard to come by in our system right now. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. So what have you learned about trust in Wisconsin? What do and, and don't Wisconsin voters trust about the system now and, and what's driving that? So I think both uh, Republicans and Democrats in the state uh, are skeptical of uh, what they would call elites and yet who each side thinks is elite is really different. And so you know, a couple of years ago, Democrats thought of elites as Governor Walker and the uh, Republican majority in the state house and uh, wealthy business interests. And Republicans thought of elites as President Obama and the news media and or left-leaning organizations. And so they both will say we don't like elites, but they don't agree on what, what elites are. Sure. So, so I think um, – but, but, di- but a belief and distrust in those elites has led to distrust in larger institutions like the Wisconsin news media. Um, people trust are trusting that broadly less. They have their favorite sources. And so um, liberals especially – uh, strongly trust public radio, public television, yep. um, that sort of thing. Um, conservatives 
trust that a fair amount too, especially as compared to other sources. Mm-hmm. Um, conservatives have a higher <laughs> level of trust for talk radio. Liberals have a very low level of, of trust uh, yeah. for, for conservative talk radio. Um, and so there's, so we, we trust the, our sources differentially. Um, those sources were reporting on different issues and reporting on the same issues in different ways, uh, leading to different competing interpretations of what the truth is. And so I think that's made things hard. Um, and there's also just the sense of closeness that citizens feel to each other in the state. And so one interesting thing that we've been finding in our research is that especially for Republicans who live in suburban Wisconsin, they claim to feel closer to rural Wisconsin than rural Wisconsinites claim to feel toward rural Wisconsin. And so – and we kind of tie that back to communication effects. Governor Walker, uh, as Kathy Kramer chronicled in her book, The Politics of Resentment, um, was really good at telling voters – there are people to blame for your problems and they live in Madison and Milwaukee and they take from the system and they take benefits that you should rightfully be getting. And especially conservatives and moderates in suburban Wisconsin um, kind of internalized that message and felt a kinship with rural Wisconsin. Rural Wisconsinites for their part have felt like they've been ignored by the state mm-hmm. and ignored by power brokers for, for decades mm-hmm. um, and are constantly looking for uh, political elites and the news media to take them seriously and to help solve some of the durable problems that they've been experiencing and to tie those problems with the kind of identity concerns of suburban Wisconsinites was a really effective tool for Governor Walker for, for a long time. That's fascinating to think that a group of people is identifying more with another region than the right. actual region yeah. itself. Than where they live, right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Right. So what did, what have you learned about how – I mean you talked about this a little bit, but where people get their information, how does that drive that, that identity? Yeah, we found um, a, a bunch of different kind of media repertoires, right? So some people are just omnivorous and they just – whatever in, information they can consume, they just want the content, they consume the content. And they have a higher level of trust uh, for information and in the system and tend to be more supportive of democratic norms. Um, other folks – prefer uh, conservative talk radio and cable television. Um, They tend to have far less trust in government, far less trust in uh, the other side and uh, tend to um, perform a little bit worse on like factual quizzes about American politics like, you know, was the, what did this bill pass? Who's the chief justice of the Supreme Court? You know, those, those sorts of questions. Sure. Um, and then uh, others deal with more um, newspaper readers who tend to be among the most informed uh, about politics, the most participatory uh, about politics and also are more likely to be sorted ideologically, which means that conservatives tend to support Republicans and liberals tend to support Democrats, whereas in the 1960s, you had this group of liberal Republicans who were really liberal on you know, civil rights and you had Southern Democrats who were really conservative on civil rights. Mm-hmm. And, and so those sorts of things are gone and we see that bifurcation, especially amongst educated newspaper readers. Um, local television still number one. People say they get the most, most of their information from local TV. They tend to trust local TV more. And when so, we found that the Wisconsin Republican Party has been more strategic about trying to get on local TV hmm. as compared to uh, statewide Democrats. And so in, in so we've done a lot of surveys of the state and content analyses of news in the state. But we also have been interviewing people who've run political campaigns, uh, reporters, uh, former lawmakers, uh, former governors um, um, and, and other kinds of folks. And what we've learned is that 
Republican candidates and office holders have been more strategic about trying to get on local television um, and, and get on local television um, for the newscasts that are the most watched, you know, getting on, you know, the midweek night 10, you know, 10 o'clock news mm-hmm. is, is, is kind of the gold standard for okay. the most viewers and having the biggest kind of hit. And so we found that those sorts of things have mattered in terms of what people know, who people trust and how much people participate. So something that you you mentioned to me uh, before we started recording is uh, the split ticket voters in Wisconsin, mm, yeah. which I am sort of endlessly obsessed with the the thought we've had over the years. You know the the Obama Walker Baldwin voters yep, and yep. I, I and Obama Trump voters and you Obama know, Trump oh, voters, not, who aren't splitting sure. their ticket, but are, right. Yeah. And so there's a difference, I guess, between the the swing voter who makes up their mind from election to election and the people who are in an election voting for Tammy Baldwin and Scott Walker if they're on the same ticket and. There hasn't been, I think, a lot of information on that out there and so leaving reporters and, and those of us who try to kind of speculate on these things just guessing. But you guys have started looking a little bit at, at split ticket voters. What do we know about split ticket voters in Wisconsin now? Yeah. So so the dominant explanations have always been, um, well, some people just like balance in government. And so they'll vote for some Republicans and some Democrats because they'd prefer gridlock than to one side getting too much of what they want. And there's just not a lot of empirical evidence for that argument. Sure. Most people – we can't demonstrate reliably vote that way. Um, another dominant explanation has just been that as liberals have realized the Democrats are for them and conservatives have realized Republicans are for them, they never split their ticket and people who aren't sorted are, are the ones who do. Um, but what we found is that the f- the effect that's the biggest by, by far is these information diets we were just talking about. And so people who have really – echo chamber-like media diets. And so the liberals who go to MSNBC and Democracy Now! and will read, um, you know, John Nichols on the Cap Times editorial page, but won't read if there's a conservative, you know, on the same page. You know, like, mm-hmm. So folks who are super liberal or super conservative in their information diets virtually never split their tickets. If they do, it's probably because they – um, you know, made an error in their in their in their voting. <laughs> sure. right? they almost never do. Um, it's 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 below one percent of a likelihood for the people with the wow. most um, echo chamber like media diet. But for those who consume a wide range of ideological sources and mainstream sources, especially so people who will read newspapers, watch local TV, and the liberal who checks out Fox, the conservative who checks out MSNBC, those people. Uh, have a 25% chance of splitting their ticket. Um, now, there aren't a lot of those people, but when we when we know roughly between 8 and 11% of Wisconsinites split their ticket, by far that like, the people who are in that category are coming from this group that have a really diverse information diet. And it also comes from groups who talk to people who are different than them. So people who are talking politics with like-minded folks look just like the hardcore echo chamber media folks. And people who talk with a wide array of people, usually at work, um, about politics and they're, they're the people that they're different from are way more likely to split their ticket than anybody else. And so diversity in our information diet seems to be the thing um, that reduces partisan voting behavior. It's so much higher of a, of a chance than I would have expected. That's fascinating. We almost never see empirical effects where it's 25% to 1%. You know, comp- sure. that's, that's a really large effect. Yeah. And we're, as you mentioned earlier, seeing people 
having fewer of those conversations across the aisle, or at least they're shutting down some of those right. avenues. There's less of it than there used to be, and it's and we can tie it directly to people's attitudes about contentious issues like Act 10, for example, which is you know kind of the big one in Wisconsin in the last decade. Sure. Uh, one other thing I think that um, also matters, we talked a lot about how information matters, and the other thing that matters is just what it's like where you live. And so uh, one paper that we just published uh, that was led by a student of ours named Jiun Suk um, looks at whether the county you were living in over the last couple of years had a stronger recovery from the recession that preceded the Obama years or a weaker recovery from that recession. In places that had a weaker recovery, where economic times are still hard, people are less polarized. They're looking for anybody to help them, and it doesn't need to be somebody on their team. In counties that have had a strong recovery, they are the most polarized people in the state. If, if if they don't have the economic concerns comparatively that they had when the recession started, they're about their side and the other side is terrible. Wow. That's, that seems kind of surprising. We're, we were surprised by that too. Um, you know, it, it's not a 25 to 1 kind of effect like sure, a split ticket sure. voting. But it, the, the tendencies are really strong that if, if the context you're living in is better, then you're on the right team. Sure. So you should hate the other side. I mean, I'm not telling you to do that. But that's how people <laughs> tend, tend to reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're not concerned about basic survival, you have more time to think about what you'd like to see out of politics and what that party is bringing to it. Right, and it becomes more salient about the things you don't like about the other side, right? So, so for example, if you are kind of a moderate Republican, but you really believe um, that abortion should not be legal and the economy is good, you can spend more time thinking about that preference. Sure. Whereas if it's just we've got to fix this economy, maybe you set that – that disagreement with the Democrats aside and say, I know we disagree here, but let's let's look at your ideas to make the economy better. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So what are you hoping to to do with all of this information and, and what comes next in terms of more research, presentations, what you all are working on? Yeah, so we have a few different goals, one of which uh, from a research perspective is we're under contract uh, to put out a book uh, with Cambridge University Press that if we meet our deadline, will come up before the election about Wisconsin wow. politics in 2020. So we're really grinding hard on that. Um, and trying to get that out. Uh, we're hosting a, um, a conference uh, February 27th and 28th, bringing in 10 scholars from around the world to talk about kind of civic fracture and what we can do about it. Next year, we'll do civic renewal and look at <laughs> – so now that we've laid out these problems, what can we do to try to fix them? This is good. Yep. And then uh, – so we have that, those research goals uh, and then we also have more public-facing goals. So we have those in kind of two directions, one of which is just – publishing um, stuff in public-facing places. Like, so we've, we've put op-eds in the Cap Times and the Journal Sentinel and Vox, and we are going to be working with the Brookings Institution to put things out about where people get information, how to, who, who believes fact-checks, who, who believes in conspiracies, and what can we do to stop people from believing in conspiracies. <laughs> so we're going to do a lot of more public-facing writing about those sorts of things. And then um, we just give talks around the state. So I've given, I think, 120 talks around Wisconsin over the last eight years, wow. and we'll keep doing that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, where we just you know talk to civic groups, alumni groups, um, organi- or, or, or sometimes it's just you know like chambers of commerce or rotary clubs or uh, church groups or things like that. But it's always just talking about, you know, issues that people care about. The, the two most popular talks are the polarization one and the how do we decide what's true in, a, in our current society talk. And so we do lots of those sorts of things to try to help people navigate kind of the minefield and of, of the information that we are subjected to <laughs> today. Yeah. I, I, I'm not surprised those are the two most popular yeah, yeah, things. Sure. I think yeah. there's a, a hunger to figure out what to do about for both sure. of those issues. And everybody yeah. has an opinion about it, which makes yes. them – really fascinating to talk to. So it's not just me prattling on for an hour. It's a half an hour talk and then a half an hour conversation, which 
gives us great ideas for research, but also helps us learn what people are thinking about what it is we're, we're doing. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing yeah. some of your insights. I'll be looking forward to seeing what comes next, and um, hopefully we f- can f- fix this whole fractured mess. Yeah, we'll just we'll just get that done. We'll yeah, fi- we'll slap a Band-Aid on it. It'll be great. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. long-time listener, first-time guest. Thank you very much. Very exciting yeah. to have you here. <laughs> Since my heart still likes to be, I'm coming home. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We've got new episodes every other Friday, so make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at jessieopie, or you can email me at jopoyan at madison.com. If you like what you're hearing on Wedge Issues, you can also check out our other Cap Times podcasts like The Mad Splainers or The Corner Table. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.